0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger on the Intellectual History Channel, and today we're fortunate to be joined by Katharina Pistor, the author of a relevant and interesting examination of the role of law in the process of capital asset creation entitled The Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality published by Princeton University Press in 2019. Hi, Katharina. Thanks for joining, or thanks for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Hi, good morning. Um, I'm, a, I'm a really grateful uh, for having me today. I'd love to talk about the book.
0: Katharina, uh, thanks again. Uh, you're a professor uh, of comparative law and, and the director of the Center on Global uh, Legal Transformation at Columbia Law School. Before we dive into the thesis, uh, can you tell us a bit about your background and how it led to the idea uh, or the ideas uh, for this book?
1: Yeah, so I'm actually a a German lawyer. I went to law school in Germany and got my degrees there. I came to the United States in the early 1990s in the midst of um, the ongoing transition of the former socialist world. And I spent quite some time on the ground in Russia and Eastern European countries and debating mostly with economists about what had to be done to create a a new type of economy in those countries. And I think my experience with transformations of that kind um, led me to understand better how important institutions are for the functioning of ordinary economies. Um, It was just very clear that you can't just allocate property rights and then markets would take off, but you had to think very hard about a company law, um, about what rights shareholders should have, how you would create um, markets in different types of assets. And I think that has given me really a sense to denaturalize uh, markets if you wish, and to really think about their legal underpinnings. And when the 2008 crisis hit the capitalist system, I basically just refocused from the former socialist world to the new uh, capitalist world and and it's likely transformation. So,
0: so, so you have uh, a a good handle or a good understanding on corporate governance and that that's an area or is it an area that you, uh, that you cover?
1: Yes, um, and yes, I, I do teach corporate law, um, and of course, I have a full chapter in my book that talks about companies, in particular, about legal persons. So the ability to create an entity in law that has core features of personality that you know owns its own assets and can contract in its own name, can sue and be sued in its own name. These are you know legal creatures which have fascinated me always, and you know, in the 1990s, we were trying to help uh, the former socialist world to come to grips with these creatures again. And um, and then, of course, you observe how they are being transformed over time in the course of the financialization of capitalism in the West as well, which has happened over the last 20 or 30 years.
0: Comparative methodology, I guess?
1: Yes. Well, I'm a passionate comparativist. I think that um, it's much easier or much clearer to understand how institutions operate in a given system if you compare um, um, other systems as well, which is not easy because of course legal systems and economies are rather complex. And so you have to find an inroad, you have to set up case studies quite well to to get some insights from a comparison. So I've always resisted um, what many comparative lawyers actually have done in the past, just describing what we do here with what another country might be doing. But I've always tried to understand why is it that other countries do things differently? And I think one of the questions that has driven this book was, you know, why is it that in some legal systems um, uh, there was so much more accommodation for holders of assets to give them the additional legal protections that they crave to create wealth and why other systems have been more, resistance to that, um, but also why in the age of globalization, um, the expansion of once one model um, has been so uh, both aggressive and um, also, also successful at the end. Um, and so what I'm doing when I engage in comparative analysis, I'm basically trying to find, um, you know, to control for some factors, right? So what happened, mm-hmm. um, if you, you know, I always tell to my students, you have to have, you know, similar seeds that you are the same seeds that you put into different soil or you take different seeds and you put them into the same soil and so and then you basically have a kind of not you never get this true biological setup in a a social system but that's the basic idea
0: before we leave that um russian bonds were quite the thing for a while and
1: so it all crashed of course in 1998 so i spent a lot of time between 93 and 98 1999 in russia and as you suggest, at some point, um, the, the sovereign bond market started um, expanding rapidly. It was, um, um, I think, since the 19, since 1995, roughly, where they tried to help the government to issue debt in order to fund the government. And what is, of course, interesting, the need to fund the government came from the fact that, you know, you tried to privatize companies, but the, just privatizing them didn't mean that they now had revenue and profits that the government could tax. So the government was still starved of funds even after it had gone through all the hoops of doing privatization. And so they were running um, hyper, almost hyperinflation, very high inflation in the mid-1990s. And then the government started to issue bonds and creating mechanisms also for foreigners to invest into these bonds. And that then uh, led to a huge boom and then ultimately the default in 1998. So I think if you, if you look at that story, you can also see, again, the interdependencies of different policy moves, um, and they are to some extent, I think, um, caused by the fact that many of the economic advisors just didn't understand the basic institutional structures that were needed to uh, make a move from a former a socialist economy into something new, whatever you want to call it.
0: Sure. Yeah. No, thanks for for sharing that. Well. Hey, let's um we should move in into in into your book and and I wanted to ask you and I don't you entitled or you put the title of your first chapter is Empire of law and you you start off by making the point um about the huge increase in the in the wealth disparity in in western market economies and and this is 30 years after the the collapse of socialism and as you point out um there, there's many plausible explanations, but the fundamental question, as you said, should focus on the process of, of capital creation. Can can you walk us through your suggestion that the answer lies in uh, capital's uh, legal code?
1: Of course, yeah. So the, my core argument is basically that capital assets are certain types of assets that have attributes that other objects, things, or ideas don't have. Um, So when you look at um, the evolution of wealth over time, you can see that different types of assets have been used for wealth creation. Um, you can look at land um, and, and until the late, late 19th century, land was the most important source of wealth. And then financial assets, uh, urban real estate as well, but financial assets in particular and later intellectual property rights took over. So you look at what Piketty actually in his book, um, Capital in the 21st Century, called the metamorphosis of capital. And then you have to understand or have to ask the question, I think, you know, how is it that different types of assets become sources of wealth? And what an economist would tell you, it's just a question of you know technological change. And I looked at the uh, at the same data and looked at the time when these shifts occurred. Um, When you look at the empirical evidence that Piketty provides, for example, changes happened in the law at that time that we're using to create wealth, and came up with my thesis. And here's the thesis: the thesis says, give me any object like a piece of land, any promise to future payments um, or any idea or know-how, and I can flip this into a wealth-producing asset with the right legal DNA. And when you look a little closer at these wealth-producing assets, they have a range or a number of attributes um, that are wealth-creating and wealth-protecting. They have priority or their holders have priority rights in comparison to other claimants to the same object. They have durability, which basically means that you extend these rights in time. You're trying to um, protect assets against too many claimants, even in the future, not only today. Um, The third is universality, which means that you protect these attributes against the world, not only against your contracting parties with whom you cut a deal about protecting them, but that somehow these claims will be protected against the world. And last but not least, you have convertibility and convertibility is really how the way in which financial assets attain durability. So financial assets, you just don't want to hold forever, but you want to flip them into safer assets, especially in times of crisis. So in the midst of the pandemic right now, we're seeing again that everybody's running for the dollar, convert your assets now into some asset that is, that will hold its nominal value. That's not interesting in normal times because you want to create more wealth, but in c- times of crisis, you want to protect the nominal value, you, you want to lock in past gains, and that's what you do with convertibility. So if you have a put option, a legal put option, or so if you have access to the central bank, basically to get cash, or if you can create a put option that is big enough for the central bank to take, even if you don't have a legal right to it, then then you have convertibility. Four attributes, again, priority... Um, durability, com- uh, universality, and convertibility—you need three of of those to become a capital asset. If you want,
0: you you talk about this uh, concept of the the feudal calculus. How, how does that then play into the uh, the the mix?
1: Well, the question is, you know, who, who who gets to choose which assets will become capital assets, and how is it done, right? And I, I picked up this wonderful quote by the late Bernard Rudden, um, who taught legal history and actually mm. also Soviet law in Oxford for many years. And he wrote in an article back in 1994 that, you know, back then when we created property rights, it was actually during the age of feudalism. And of course, the property rights were created for the feudal class. And then he says, and today the same kinds of kind of rights are used for funds, as he called them. And you move these funds by the click of a mouse or a keyboard. Um, but basically the same thing is, is is happening. And I basically took that as, as a great advice to go back and think about where did this property rights come from? What other legal modules, as I call them in the book, were at work in transforming simple claims, simple assets into capital? And I'm, I'm basically identifying in the book uh, five or six important elements or modules of the code of capital, um, which are uh, property rights, collateral law, uh, common law trust, corporate law, bankruptcy, and then to smooth it out and, and or mimic some of the other features, you also have contract law. I'm not saying that there are not other legal modules or legal institutions that you could use, but these are the ones that are have been most wise, widely used to code code capital.
0: And the and, uh... And so you've got your legal modules um, as you just laid them out, and but you also apply or you apply the assets uh, as asset classes um, to to those modules. And you start out in chapter two, I, th- I think, uh, with with land, and then and then make your way to 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 firms, and then and then debt. I and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seemed like debt was the one that really covers or or hits all the modules
1: yes um so let me just say one word about the coding um uh, so when I talk about code and coding I'm not um talking about the big codifications like you know the French civil code or the German civil code um, but really sure. the process of coding just want to make that clear and what I how I'm when I think I'm thinking about the coding I'm really thinking about Using these legal modules and grasping them onto different asset um, classes, first on land and then um, on farms and on debt. Um, With land, of course, it all starts with these big enclosure movements. Um, In England in the 16th century, 15th, 16th century, um, when most of this happened, in other countries we have um, similar developments where some parties, the landlords, claimed exclusive rights to the land and, and eventually... Uh, obtained recognition of their claims by the courts, um, even long before you create a land registry, et cetera. So it's clearly that that's where property rights come in. But you also can see there already that collateral law is close by because once they have obtained property rights, um, Mm -hmm. they can um, um, obtain a mortgage from a creditor because they can give a collateral in their land to get more money, which they can invest either in the land or into some of their commercial ventures. And once, um, and th- and and so th- that's exactly what they do. But then also, we're still sticking to land here. At some point, the landowners, of course, realize that if they give a mortgage to a creditor and they can't pay back their loan, the creditor will take their land. So what they did is they found um, lawyers, the country solicitors, who offered to help them. And of course, they used the law to help them. They basically created something close to a trust. They entailed the land, as mm-hmm. they called it, and basically called the owner, not an owner, but a, a life tenant. And the owner was holding the assets on behalf of future generations, with the effect that the creditors could not enforce fully against the land. They could take only 50% of the land and never the family mansion. So you see already three of my modules here at work, like property rights, collateral Mm -hmm. law, and trust law. And of course, contract is baked into that as well, even just with land. As you suggest, when we we move on to debt, it becomes even more fancy. Um, And you can, you know, there's a long, long history. It used to be the case that people could not transfer their claims against others. Like I give you an IOU, you owe me a certain amount of payment in the future. Um, only since the 12th century do we have evidence that people found ways around the law to make sure that they could actually assign their right to obtain money from others. Because we, when you think about it, contracts are between two people, right? Two persons who have decided to contract with one another, and that one just without asking the other necessarily just transfers his rights as sort of something that had to be invented. Now, then you can trace this all the way to this day and, and what I do in the book, I'm talking about um, securitized mortgages as a very sophisticated form of creating debt, where you then start basically with land. Somebody owns a home but needs a credit, and this credit then is being transferred um, uh, from the originator to another bank. that throws the claim against the homeowners into a trust and then issues certificates against the trust to investors and these investors have different types of rights to cash flows in the trust, etc. So you can see how all these elements or modules of the code of capital play together to create something as complicated and sophisticated as um, securitized assets.
0: Sure, and uh, and before uh, I ask you about the Lehman Brothers uh, situation, because that uh, has, has as you describe it and is is quite a, a work of um, uh, legal um I don't know maneuvering I guess is, is the word but um hey is there anything to the idea of uh, you had mentioned uh in a note about a, a double trust problem does that does that play into um a- anything or am I sidetracking you here?
1: No, no I'm happy to respond to that. So there's a there's a book um out by um, Bob Cooter at Berkeley and and Ben Schaefer, he's an anonymous in Hamburg. And they, um, uh, I think they call it Solomon's Knot, um, how basically the law creates wealth, they're arguing. And um, they're basically saying that you need law to resolve the double trust problem. And the double trust problem is I have an idea, but no money, and you have the money, but no idea. And mm-hmm. the question is, how can we put our resources together, right? And and if we have you know, social trust, if you're, I don't know, my next door neighbor or somebody I've done business with a lot, then we might just do this in the social network that we live in, make sure that we both live up to our commitments. But if you want to do this on a a grander scale and with people you don't really know, you you need law. And their entire book is about how the law has facilitated resolving this double trust problem so that one of us might cheat. And, mm-hmm. and I think I'm not saying this is wrong, neither am I, am I saying that this is unimportant. I'm just saying this is not enough to create capital. This is not, not how, you, how you become wealthy. This is of course essential to some extent to have a market economy to resolve the double, double trust problem. But what I'm showing in my book is that much more is happening. We're creating legal privileges with the help of law, that's how you create wealth. You're basically putting your claims and your assets on legal steroids and the state is backing them. And because you can rely on these uh, state-backed legal institutions, you can protect your assets against others, it's basically walling in your wealth, not just, you know, you start with resolving the double trust problem, but the next step that you need is to protect your assets. So let me just go back to the example I gave earlier about land. When you enclose land, it's my property. Then people say, "Well, property rights." Everybody says, "Well, key for the economic development we've seen since since feudalism." But I'm basically saying, you know, this is just not enough. Neither is it enough when Hernando de Soto goes around the world and says, "Give title to the squatters, and then they can become rich. They can um, grow themselves out of poverty, essentially." Because Inevitably, there will be economic downturns. There will be exogenous shocks, as the economists um, would like to say, say. and which which have nothing to do with the ability of people to trust one another. But it's just sort of the business cycle. It's sort of something dramatic like a pandemic. It could be the collapse of the international cotton market, whatever it is. People who don't have protections will lose everything. They lose their shirt, they lose their house, they lose everything. If you can protect your assets, you're better off. Now, in extreme situations like a Great Depression, you will also lose a lot. But you can, in- as if you can insulate your claims from others in a better way, then you can protect your wealth. And I'm arguing basically that was key for wealth creation. So resolving the double trust problem is important for creating markets, but it's not the same as creating wealth. Okay. Well, then... Um...
0: Mentioned in in chapter three, or you you set that up about cloning uh, legal persons, and um, uh, it, when I first saw that, I, it reminded me. I don't know you're probably familiar with uh, uh, Elizabeth Wolgast's uh, ethics of an artificial person, and 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 she had walked through this uh, a, a bit of this in a dip diff- from a different perspective. You mentioned and and go over the Lehman Brothers issue and. And I was. This goes right to the heart of. Um, well, uh, there's a bunch of things that uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with from the film "The Inside Job" and all the stuff that is related to the the global financial crisis. But but Lehman Brothers and and then the collapse and of all the subsidiary firms like Ford Motor Credit and GMAC to the to the financial service firms. But can you unpack a bit of that? For us, in terms of how you deal with it,
1: yeah. So you know, I I, I think the nice thing about crises is to um, be able to really do what I like to call an an institutional autopsy. It's like you're a pathologist, and you finally have an opportunity to cut right. up the system and look how it works. And that's basically what I'm doing in that in that uh, chapter. And I'm taking Lehman Brothers because we have all these bankruptcy reports and different jurisdictions, and so we can do that type of work, which is difficult when the system is still in motion. So. In, in, in my uh, chapter, I'm basically saying, okay, Lehman Brothers is, of course, not a single entity, um, and when you look at some of the financial reportings that they had to do uh, before they died, uh, essentially, you can see that Lehman Brothers consisted of, of course, the holding company, which was a Delaware um, uh, corporate structure, and then over 200 registered subsidiaries in different jurisdictions, plus probably hundreds, of thousands, what we call special purpose vehicles in financial jargon, and which typically are either common law trusts or corporations, again. Um, the interesting thing is you don't see these subsidiaries to spread in different countries around the world where Lehman might be doing business, which is the typical explanation for why financial intermediaries in particular would have the subsidiary elsewhere. Very often domestic law requires banks and other financial intermediaries to set up subsidiary. But when you look at the, at the data, at the evidence, you can see that there are 60 subsidiaries in the state of Delaware alone, subsidiaries in the UK, 30 some in the Cayman Islands, and then a couple of them spread around the world, like in you know from, from Australia to Japan, Germany and France. And so then you wonder why do you have sixty subsidiaries in Delaware? And what's going on here? And so when you cut up the system a little bit more, you find that um, uh, Lehman essentially operated as follows: you have a holding structure, and the assets of the holding structure are its sub- uh, its shares in all the subsidiaries, right? You operate; they operated the entire entity as a as an integrated, almost unitary entity, but they use the corporate form as a risk shifting device and as a device to, again, to, to um, uh, uh, create um, the kind of attributes I mentioned earlier, you create priority clans for some claimants over assets. Um, you create durability um, and, you, and, and you create um, universality. So what they basically did for each financial project, if you wish, they create a separate subsidiary and the subsidiary goes out and raises debt finance to run uh, the project. The parent company holds the shares in the subsidiary and guarantees now the debt of that subsidiary. They did this in most cases. Sometimes creditors barked and said, you can't, um, we we don't, um, oh no, they wanted to have the guarantee, but they to make sure that the um, subsidiary would not shift profits back to the Um, parent company so that's core as well the parent company says i i guarantee your debt but then you pay all the profits back to me and once they receive their profits they pay the profits back to their own shareholders so this in this structure the parent company effectively waives a core feature of the corporate form which is limited liability right so in principle even a parent company can say I'm not liable for the debt of my subsidiary. If the subsidiaries close it down, end of story, right? When they give a guarantee through the creditors, they take on that risk themselves. Parent company did this in order to lower the cost of debt finance for the subsidiaries. And the creditors felt assured because if the holding company guarantees the debt, then they can give the debt to the subsidiary. But if the parent company owns the shares in the subsidiary has no other assets really than shares in in the subsidiary, you can see that this is rather circular. It works as long as markets boom, right? You make a lot of money, you get a lot of debt finance, you refinance, all the profits go back to the parent and the parent pays them all back to the shareholders because they do have limited liability. They get the benefits of dividends or share repurchases um, and they don't face any of the liabilities. If anything goes wrong, seriously, The creditors at the subsidiary level have the option to basically call the parent and ask it to stand in for the debt. And if the parent can't pay because it has no liquid assets, if it doesn't get enough profits from the subsidiary, and if it cannot sell the shares of the subsidiaries, then it goes broke. And if the parent goes broke, the whole system collapses, right? That's basically the story.
0: That's the inside job.
1: That's the inside job, yes. How do the rating agencies play into this? The rating agencies are an inter- interesting story um, for corporate bonds, for sovereign bonds, also for the securitized assets that I mentioned earlier. I think for corporate bonds, they've had a fairly good history in, in assessing the debt um, um, over time, and they have long-term histories of major corporations, such as General Motors, where um, they that they could rely on. It became a bit more complicated when they looked into um, securitized assets and, and their derivatives. But but you, of course, have a point. The question is always how much of the um, relevant information that investors need now is actually incorporated in the ratings. And perhaps even more importantly is when do the rating agencies alter their ratings and respond to changes in the marketplace um, and, and give investors, thereby, the information that they need to respond on their own investments. And what we've seen in crisis after crisis, you know, already in the East Asian financial crisis of the 1990s and in the dot-com crisis and, and in 2008 again, is that rating agencies are sticky. They don't respond very fast. And, and you can still have, mm-hmm. um, you know, A ratings when things go wrong. At the front end, right, at the front end, when they start rating, of course, they can also make mistakes. And in part, because their rating methodology is not adequate for the assets that they're rating. And I think the case has been made a lot for um, securitized assets and derivatives is that they use the same labels like AAA, AA, et cetera, for assets for which they did not have the history that they had for corporate bonds, and therefore created an illusion that they could be at the same level of safety, which nobody knew because we didn't know these assets, mm. right? So, so even just that, the labels were probably a problem. And then, of course, they have certain rating methodologies and they have rating different rating methodologies for each asset class, and they're quite sophisticated, um, one has to say. And yet, of course, they did not necessarily look through the entire scheme themselves, and of course, the banks that were trying to, you know, underwrite these issues and, and the investment banks, et cetera, they were trying to push them to give them the ratings that they needed. And in the, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the world of structured finance, where you have more complex financial assets beyond bonds, they were trying to create assets that would meet the rating criteria which they needed to sell these assets to particular investors. And in one way, you could say, well, what's wrong with that? Um, but on the other hand, of course, you can see the pressure, right? Also on the rating agencies to give the big banks the rating that they need to issue these assets and, you know, the, the big banks pay the rating agencies. So, so that's where, again, the, the whole loop comes to a close, right? And where the um, incentives to really be a true market watchdog. As we sometimes call rating agencies, um, are, are just not properly aligned. Mm,
0: yeah, good good point. Hey, so this I I, I think I hope uh, leads into your uh, chapter on minting debt, which is a kind of a well, really a kind of key chapter. Um, hey, you you go into the the, 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 the trust structure there, and it, to me it struck me at the time as a, as I looked at that and you because you used the terminology. A uh, special purpose vehicle, and wasn't that? I mean, that's almost right from uh, Enron's uh, uh, CFO, and I can't remember his name at the moment. But, but, but that seems like right out of their playbook. And I, I and I'm not sure you go into Enron it all that much. But, but the point is, is that um, there, there's definitely an overlap there, and it, and uh, I think you hit, hit that thing right on the nose
1: yeah, no I, I i I'm not talking about Enron, but you're right. there are similar structures. And again, you know, when i when I talk about the trust, it's the same trust that the landowners in England use to you know and to protect um some of their clients against other creditors, including tax creditors. It's the same structure. You just repurpose it, which again is my point about the coding of capital. What is really so startling for me is that when you, Break down these complex derivatives of securitization structures. Now we'll talk about them in a second. But what you find is property law, collateral law, the trust, and some corporate law, of course, contract law mixed into that, um, and bankruptcy comes in the back end. <laughs> but um, so you, you find these institutions, and I you know I started my book really after I had done a lot of work on the 2008 crisis and and and, and tried to disaggregate you know, these structures. So let me say a few words about um, the story I tell in, in the chapter about minting debt. It really starts with homeowners in California who need a loan, and then they find somebody who gives them the loan but takes a mortgage, um, a mortgage um, originator, and it was New Century, one of the more aggressive mortgage originators that already went bankrupt, I think in in the spring of 2007. So before the entire crisis really unfolded, but an early warning sign. So they were trying to originate, originate a lot of mortgages because the big banks like Citibank that bought this particular set of mortgages was trying to get more of them because they were doing the securitization machine. And the whole idea was to create assets that investors were craving because investors were trying to find assets that were relatively safe, had high ratings um, at the same time, and, um, and, but would still yield more than your ordinary sovereign treasury bonds or, or may, maybe even bonds from big corporations. So, you know, you won't always want to have the cake and eat it too. You should know, of course, if you get more, you probably also have more risk, whatever the rating agencies tell you. In any way, so you have the homeowners, they get a mortgage, they get a loan. Somebody sort of amasses all these um, loans and mortgages and then sells it on to a big bank such as Citibank, which again has a subsidiary. Well, this goes back to the Lehman story. You have always these different subsidiaries that do different stuff. So one of the subsidiaries, a Walker subsidiary, takes all these loans, thousands of them, with certain types of characteristics, right? Uh, Think of family, um, the price between, I don't know, I I don't remember all the numbers right now from the book, but not more than $300,000 per house and blah, 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 blah. You pack them all together. You throw them into a trust. Why do you throw them into the trust? Because you want to get them off the balance sheet of the city's Uh. subsidiary, Mostly because you can now tell the investors who are buying an interest in the trust that they don't have to think about the city subsidiary or the city group, the entire group at all, because they are protected from any risk, because this trust is bankruptcy remote. If you can make the case that you really sold these things from the subsidiary into the trust, then you have basically created a legal transaction and create a legal deal around these assets that protect the investors in these assets from city. City goes under, we don't care. We still have the cash flow that goes into the trust and we can only look at, 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 at that. And then they issue the certificates to investors. Before they do those, they actually um, create different types of interest in the cash flows that come into the trust, right? The cash flows are the, the mortgage payments that the homeowners make. But you can then tell the investors, well, you know, we can create rights to this cash flow that are differentiated so that we can find investors Mm -hmm. who want to have safety, who will always get the first money that comes in and will always be the last to face any losses if there are any losses. And then you can create the reverse and you can say you're always going to be the last one who gets any cash if cash comes in and you will always be the first one to bite the bullet. But you get higher returns for that, right? You get higher yield. So you, it's, we call this tranching after the French verb, so you basically cut up these cash flows in different ways. You're basically creating priority rights with the help of contract law when you do this. And then different investors who have different appetite for risk or have to deal with their own regulation that they can't buy more of a certain type of asset because they are... Governed by prudential rules, et cetera, um, they can just buy sure. the kind of cash flows that they want. Um, and, and 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 then then of course there's a, a yet another chapter in the story. What happens quite often, or what happened increasingly as the market became bigger and bigger, it was also becoming kind of saturated. At some point, there were always some challenges in these trusts that were more difficult to sell than others, and these were typically the lower. Um, a mezzanine tranches. So they were n- not risky enough to really yield high uh, high yields and, um, and they were too risky for many other investors. And at some point, the financial industry then um, got a hold of this problem because if you can't place all your tranches, you can't close the entire deal and you get stuck. And that really uh, um, slows down, if not um, uh, stops this entire market. So they created their own buyers. They cloned Mm -hmm. their own biases when I'm talking about cloning legal persons. And also in that Mm -hmm. chapter, again, they're setting up what we now call as, you know, a CDO structure, collateralized debt obligation. You basically create another trust or create another corporation, which raises funds from investors, typically debt finance, because they want to have fixed returns, they don't want to have the variability that comes with equity. And you take their money and you buy the mezzanine tranches from a lot of different securitization structures and because you diversify by the types of clients that go into that by the ge- geography, you again can create you know tranches some of which rating agencies will be willing to rate at maybe not triple A but double A. so what you're buying is everything in the old securitization structures was you know highly risky sort of B range at most and um, a lower B range perhaps. And now, since we have so much of this, you are tranching it again, and lo and behold, you have some, you know, um, safer assets that investors are willing to buy. And if you get stuck again on the mezzanine tranches, the lower mezzanine tranches, you just create another one, which is a CDO squared. And if you get stuck again, you do a CDO cubed. And these things did exist. I'm not making this up. But you basically are <laughs> <can> see how <laughs> how you can create legal structures, right? That um, because you can clone legal persons and you can create the structures that create the appearance of safety, um, that investors are willing to fall for that and buy buy this and then um, uh, and, and hope to make money on that.
0: Sure. Well, so does Minsky? Uh, you mentioned. You, or you referenced Minsky and, and you 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 talk a little bit about uh, the credit process, uh, the, this thing about endogenous destabilization and and Ponzi finance. Does he figure into this at all, or or is that a am I sidetracking you?
1: No, no, no. It's it's a good point. I mean, Minsky died, I think, in nineteen ninety four, so he didn't live to 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 see our uh, the major boom in securitization. But he knew enough, and I think his basic thesis can be transposed to our day as well. And and uh, uh, you no, know, people like Perry Merling and at, and was not Boston you and and others have 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 done the transposition. Maybe in a more sophisticated way than than I'm able to do, but but his basic insight it pertains to exactly what I just suggested. So so he he says, um, you know, credit based financial systems. He basically says capitalism is a is the financial system, and he thinks mostly about credit and leverage. And um, and and what this means for for liquidity and what he basically argues is that mostly financial systems, even if they start fairly conservatively, and only and investors invest only in projects that will, with a very high probability, produce the expected returns at the time that they're being expected. This is what he calls hedge finance. Over time, people figure out well if they also invest in a couple of projects where we probably won't get the returns on the time, but we have to refinance. Actually, we can make more money. And then through competitive processes, more and more people will do that. And the next stage is to say, well, why don't we all invest in projects that will with a very high likelihood have to be refinanced at T1 where we want to get our returns. And once you get into this this spiral and everybody is basically trying to refinance, and at some point the system... Collapses um, because um, mm. somebody will not get refinancing, and everybody else gets scared that you can't get refinancing. And of course, when you look at the mm. um, securitization structure and the, the the derivatives that I just described, um, you get something similar. You are expecting that you can still find um, um, investors to buy in a certain into a certain type of asset class. Um, and they're of course also thinking about whether they can, you know, whether these assets will be liquid enough that they can cash them in when they do something else. And, um, and, and so it's a very high sophisticated, highly sophisticated fashion of refinancing. Um, and the system obviously at some point crashed as Minsky would have predicted.
0: chapter five, you go on to, uh, is entitled, "Enclosing uh, nature's code and, um, Hey, you talk a little bit about the value of intangibles and and a bunch of things there with patents and uh, trade-based approaches. And can can you walk us through a little bit of of, of, of nature's code there?
1: Yeah. So um, when the, the chapter is really about intellectual property rights, and I could have used um, other interests, but I found it just most compelling to think about um, uh, the fact that we have begun to use. Intellectual property rights, in particular patent law, to create exclusive rights into something like the genetic code. Um, and it's interesting because, in principle, um, um, the, even the U.S. Supreme Court and and most statutes around the world would have excluded um, something of you know the basic laws of nature, basic you know algorithms, things that are out there from patentability. So patentability means, we all know that patent is an artificially created right. I mean, for land, people sometimes find it hard to understand that it's really the law that flips land into a a monetizable capital asset. But for intellectual property rights, the Constitution, in the U.S. says, you know, Congress has the power to create intellectual property rights, to create them. They don't exist outside the law, right? So now... For what kind of things can you create these rights, right? And who gets to choose, again, is the big question. And um, in principle, again, case law in the U.S. for a very long time said, well, of course, not laws of nature and not the genetic code. But then at some point in the early 80s, a decision came down where they said, well, if humans manipulate the genetic code, then that thing that is manipulated actually can be patented. So this was, of course, you know, when I had the start of the biotech a revolution and people ran to the US patent offices and patented all kinds of stuff. And the story I'm telling is about um, patenting the sequence of the BRCA gene and the BRCA gene is responsible for a very aggressive form of breast cancer. Um, and the gene itself had been discovered by a multinational consortium of scientists who were sponsored by governments. So basic science is very often sponsored by governments. The private sector typically comes in when you can make money off it, but not when you do basic science. So the identification of the gene had been done by scientists and a group also of scientists, again, funded by the NIH and other government sponsors was going to find the sequence when a savvy entrepreneur had the idea of getting venture capitalists to fund a competitive project and try to get the sequencing first um, and they succeeded they were first they patented um, the sequence and some other stuff about the BRCA gene and they got a patent in the early 1990s and then basically um, send cease and desist Orders to doctors and labs around the country and said, "We now have the patent for the brackware sequencing. You can no longer apply your own tests to test women whether they have um, uh, the, the this particular gene, which very often is then um, uh, leads to the hard decision for women to make whether they want to have when to have a um, double mastectomy performed on them, even though they're not sick yet, because if they get it, it might already be too late." Um, so I'm telling in the book the story about Angelina Julie who made the decision mm-hmm. to have this mastectomy and wrote about it in op ed in the in the New York Times. Long story short, finally in twenty thirteen, after years and years of legal battle where doctors and patient groups and all kinds of get together and fight against that patent by Myriad Company in Utah and saying this is this should not be patentable. This is really a you know p- part of nature. And they win To a large extent, Uh, the Supreme Court strikes down part of the patent, Uh, not all of it, so where they find a little bit of a manipulation of the RNA, they say that can be patentable, but in principle, the sequence of the BRCA gene cannot be patented. So that was 20 years later, and it tells you two stories. First of all, if you have the opportunity to create priority rights, um, durability, and to have this universally enforceable against the world. You can make a lot of money for a long period of time until somebody finally strikes down and the court comes back or legislature intervenes and says, no, you cannot have that. So even if you're pushing the boundaries of what should be patentable for what you should have, these kind of property rights, because you're being policed here mostly by other competitors, private parties, you can have a first-move advantage. Um, and the second point, of course, is that what 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 this story is about is that we have actually shifted the boundaries of what should be patentable, what kind of things you should get an artificial monopoly right to have the exclusive right to monetize that thing for, uh, for such a period of time, right? That The boundaries of this have shifted. It used to be very clear what you cannot do. And, but these boundaries have become blurred, and especially the U.S. Um, uh, patent courts have been relatively forthcoming in allowing um, things to be patentable. And that has you know, created new sources of income for those who have the patent and have excluded many others who wanted to do other things with the same sequences or other things with the same ideas from that. Um,
0: and you move on to Chapter 6, in which, well, the title is "A Code for the Globe. But, it, but a little bit about um, uh, capital in motion, meaning um, there's no borders to this. And this changes the whole situation.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one thing that um, people might puzzle about once I tell my story about how capital is coded in law, when they take a closer look at the institutions like property rights, collateral law, trust, corporate law, bankruptcy, contract law, these are all institutions of domestic law. Right? And if law is so important to create capital, these are all domestic legal institutions, you might conclude from that that we shouldn't have global capitalism. We should only have domestic capitalism because we do not have a global state, and we don't have a global legal system that has all these these modules. sure. Um, sure. so i'm I'm basically saying I resolve this puzzle of not having a global state and a global law by suggesting that we could have, global capitalism that is sustained by a single domestic legal system, as long as all other countries recognize and commit to enforce the legal creatures that this first legal system produces. Mm -hmm. And I'm basically saying in our world, we have not one, but two legal systems that do most of the job. Um, And the, the legal systems are English law. I'm not saying UK because it's not Scottish, Scottish is civil law, but it's the English common law. And it's for finance, mostly the state of New York in the US and for corporate law, you would add Delaware. So in most other legal systems, we we'll recognize and enforce the corporations, the financial assets, the contracts that have been created under these legal systems. And when you take a closer look, we know, of course, that London and New York are the global financial center still. There's Mm. competition in the East, of course, you know, sort of Hong Kong, Singapore, Shenzhen, Shanghai, um, but still there are the leading financial centers. I think New York has the heads up right now, has had it at least before the crisis because of Brexit in any event. But you also see in London and in New York, um, the top 100 global law firms, um, they all are sitting there. And actually the top 100 global law firms are mostly mostly Anglo-Saxon law firms. Um, so if you want to pull this all together, you could say that global capitalism is effectively the um, uh, the glo- globalization of Anglo-Saxon legal practices by a legal infrastructure that allows courts in different countries to recognize and enforce what has been done elsewhere. This is a set of rules that we call conflict of law rules.
0: Sure. Tell a little bit about the story about Eli Lilly because, uh, hey, Lilly's a big outfit and... Uh...
1: Yeah, so this is a story that basically brings together, again, a story about patterns and the story about h- how we have n- created new types of rights, including property rights, if you want, at the transnational level. So in addition to this conflict of law rules I just described, countries have entered into treaties with one another to protect investors that come from the other countries. So if, if I'm country A, you country B, my investors who are doing investment in Europe they get the right to take the government to arbitration outside country B if there are uh, if they have any disputes over um, the infringements of their investments. So this idea of having private parties uh, giving private parties a right against the sovereign state to sue them outside the territory of the sovereign state was a powerful idea. That was first incorporated in a big way in the uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, that was um, entered into force in 1994. Um, and that's sort of also the legal foundation for the L.A. Lyle case um, that I talk about in the book. Um, so the pharmaceutical company from the US obtains patents in Canada for its antidepressant drugs. Um, in order to get a patent, again, you need a proactive state affirmation of of that what you have is actually recognized as a patent and therefore you can exclude others from its use now at some point another generic drug maker in Canada released a similar drug and L.A. Lyle sued them in this suit a Canadian court struck down the patent that L.A. had received and not the first patent but the second patent because what Alilali has had done, and what many pharmaceuticals are doing, they're trying to in, increase their protection or um, um, make it more durable by just changing the substances of their pharmaceuticals a little bit to get a new patent when the other expires. So they had sort of changed the substance a little bit, and the court now said actually that was not a new innovation. You shouldn't have gotten the second patent, and therefore the generic drug maker has a right to make another drug because you no longer have an exclusive right. So Ella Lally then went, you know, and and appealed that in the Canadian court system, but eventually lost. And that's typically the end of the story. You lose your case, end of story. What they did then Mm -hmm. is they took their case to a NAFTA arbitration tribunal um, and basically said, you know, this is infringing our investments in Canada. You know, we made an investment, we have a subsidiary there. We, you know, we're having, all, uh, selling our drugs there and now, and we had actually patents there and now the Canadian government through its courts is infringing our investments. And then you have an arbitration tribunal that actually, you know, takes this case and sits on this case and, and deals with it for two years. Of course, there are fees being paid to the arbiters along the way, just, just a side story. And in the end says, no, you don't have this right. But the point being is the fact that you can take these transnational investor state dispute settlement mechanisms and hold hostage a government that has the right to either create or deny patents under its own laws and has its own court system all the way to the Supreme Court, which you can use and which Adalai had used. And then it was trying to top this up by using these transnational bilateral investment treaties or in this case NAFTA to push even further. Now, Canada, you know, was lucky enough to have the resources. They disputed it. Um, Many developing countries and emerging markets can't afford the law firms that you need in these actions. And many might have caved in earlier and settled the case, um, of course, to the benefit of of the other side. So the story here is just to tell you that we have, uh, again, in the interest of capital, of global capital, legal structures were created in the form of investor-state dispute settlement mechanisms that can be used to, you know, basically um, uh, threaten sovereign states uh, with multi-million-dollar litigation if they do anything um, that might infringe the interests of the investor.
0: Wow. That, hey, thanks for that. And I did, didn't mean to sidetrack it with uh, uh, Lily's an interesting story, I think. And and uh, I hope uh, people that will, will get into that. Um, hey, your next chapter is uh, The Masters of the Code.
1: Yeah. So, so of course, the question at some point is when you tell all these stories, is, is the the question who's done it, right? And closer look at, at lawyers and especially at the practic- practicing attorneys, uh, the private attorneys out there. And I, you know, I, I just want to make clear, I, I, I teach them, right? At Columbia Law School, it's a major school that's a feeder school for sure. many big firms in the city. So I'm I'm part of this machine. But I, but I also think that uh, we as lawyers and and my students, as I go out there and practice and our alums, um, et cetera, and lawyers from around the world, have to take more agency and more responsibility for what they're doing, um, and 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 so I'm just describing the contribution that they're making. I'm, I'm just the, the lawyers. Um, uh, they're central to my story because the lawyers are doing the coding of capital. Most of the advances and innovations in how what kind of assets we can use and how we can use the legal modules, um, the different um, you know property rights, collateral, trusts to create something new that will be recognized by a court and will not violate any critical regulations, that work is done by lawyers, right? And that's, that's just central to my story. And it's done in particular, it's been done historically uh, foremost by lawyers in the common law system because they have um, much more flexibility given the nature of the legal system. Plus they have judges when the case ever comes to court, they have judges on the other side that has much greater understanding for them because in common law systems, the judges are recruited from the practicing bar, from attorneys. Whereas in civil law systems, the judges become judges basically right after law school. And it that makes a good. huge difference in their attitude and how, how flexible and responsive they are for, to private practice. So the, so the lawyers, you know, they, they do the transactions, they write the contracts, they come up with these ideas of how to create a, a CDO and a CDO square and cubed. And um, uh, of course, the holders of assets, they very often, you know, know how they want to make money, but they could not do this without the help of the lawyers. That's, I think, the major point that I want to make. It's critical to have lawyers in the room, and they're not... Some people have said, well, they're rent seekers and we have too many lawyers. That's harmful for the economy. Well, I'm saying the lawyers are essential. Without them, you couldn't do what you're doing. And the flip side of that is to say, okay, lawyers, you're not just in the packaging industry. You're not just packaging an, in, an interest that your best paying clients bring to you, but you're also creating a system that has certain ramifications for the rest of us. And at the very least, I want you to be aware of that and maybe to push it a step further, If you have choices and if you want to talk to your client about what it means, perhaps to the system, if you shift the risks to others who might not be able to hold it and what ramifications this might have down the line, maybe we could make some progress.
0: Yeah, good point. You're into the comparative um, pairing systems and and certainly one of the comparisons that, and then maybe a little bit blunt at this point, but uh, uh, would be that Hey, the U.S. is governed by lawyers and some of the more authoritarian countries like uh, China are generally governed by engineers. I, I'm not sure what that means exactly, um, but the, there's something to that. And it's not, it's not about making a judgment. It's just an observation. And um, you move on from your, your chapter to a new code. Hey, you mentioned Frank Knight, and you also talk about, you, you mentioned a workshop at, at Columbia where you guys talk about cryptocurrencies. Hey, can you talk a little bit about this whole thing? Because this is interesting, and I think many, many listeners will find it interesting about blockchain and your thoughts in relation to governance and, and this coding thing.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, I think um, uh, I I felt I had to talk about um, an alternative to the legal code, which is becoming more and more important in all of our lives. And that's the digital code, right? Um, So I'm I'm saying, you know, we need law to code capital. And what law does, it's priority rights and other attributes. But it also is a fantastic social scaling technology, right? I described a code for the globe, how we use... State power. We harness state power to create massive, you know, global markets, and they're still anchored somewhere in state power. So the question, of course, is: um, uh, um, Could there be another way of um, uh, creating a scalable social technology? And and the digital code is an obvious one, because you know you can code digital platforms without borders. Um, you know, Facebook has 2.5 billion. Users um, globally, uh, you can uh, you you know the coders typically ignore any legal system, their domestic and foreign ones, and just create their own rules. You know how can you access the platform? What can you do there? How do you can you know earn points or Bitcoin or whatever you do? So mm-hmm. so that was a, a challenging um, a question for me, and 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 so I I, I took a, a closer look at how, how how the kind of decisions that coders have to make when they create. Uh, digital networks or digital platforms, and, and and as you mentioned, I also organized a, a workshop at Columbia with, um, with folks who are in the world of trying to code new types of um, currencies or create sort of these networks, uh, and many of them were not only oblivious to legal coding, they also fa- fa- found that the law just stood in their way, that ideally we should just basically scrap these rules and let them reinvent the world. Um, and, of course, you know, at some point you think, okay, I'm also, who, who who are you, right? And, and when I look at the decisions that le- the technological coders make, I just don't find them fundamentally different from the type of decisions that states make that do laws or that attorneys make when they code capital, right? You have to make decisions mm-hmm. about who has access, who does not, under what type of conditions, how do you allocate rights to this digital space, to different users? Um, Who can get more under what type of conditions? What happens if there is a bug that we can't fix? Can we go offline? Who goes offline? Who makes that decision? So some of the really fundamental decisions that relate to power um, are similar. And um, so that's, that's the first point. I think that the you know, the digital coders, they very often like to portray themselves as these sort of, you know, new types of gig economy folks who just want to do something great for the world, and yet they exert Mm -hmm. a lot of power over their users. Um, uh, I guess that's the first point. And then the second point, I uh, you know, I I finished sort of writing the book in the fall of 2018, and at that time, I came to the conclusion um, to suggest that, if I had to make a bet whether the digital code will outrace the legal code anytime soon or whether the legal code will enclose the digital code, which means basically the digital, co- digital coders ultimately will have to play by the rules of the sovereigns, I would say the latter, that the legal code will enclose the digital code. And I think so far, this has been borne out by practice. I think even the audacious Libra project had to cave in to some point and say, okay, we have to play by the rules of issuing money or securities under different laws. And so um, they have uh, slowed down the project, if not put it on hold for now. But I'm less sure, maybe I think the technological development is so fast that I'm not sure I would make this bet forever that the legal code will encode digital code.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you've provided us um, really a, a nice sampling of the book structure and and really uh, the arguments. And um, what are you currently working on?
1: So two projects. Um, uh, one is to think about the next asset and and its characteristics and its potential coding. And the big asset everybody's talking about these days, of course, is data. Uh, some people have called data the new oil. Um, and sort of characterize data as just another asset from which you can make a lot of money. And some people also have, you know, given me feedback about the book and said, well, you know, maybe you're right about um, uh, the coding of capital for the assets that you describe, but data are different. And the big tech companies, they have they get data without property rights and they can still make money out of that. And so how how about that? <laughs> so I'm I'm running a little project where we are just also funded by the uh, annual economic thinking where we're just trying to understand how different legal systems respond to data and have make decisions about who might have rights to data at what stage I to my own that I produce or a company that has harvested my data without without my consent, who has rights to that and who makes money out of that. So we're doing a comparative project where we look at the U.S. and and China, and, uh, effectively the EU, and um, uh, and are trying sort of to discern this and and looking at the economic side as well. So that's one, and then the second um, might be um, even even bigger. Although this one is big, which is to think about okay, so what's next in terms of can we do something differently? I mean, because I'm of course critiquing a system that has created so many privileges for some and has left so many others without the legal support structures that they might need and this differentiation you know is based on our law i'm also thinking the law is a social good it's not a private commodity and they're using law that is actually social good to create, you know, huge private wealth for some and the rest is basically left out. And so you have to think about this. And of course, you have to think about this very hard now in our current predicament where the law is, the world is changing before our eyes and we have an opportunity maybe to to intervene in a more creative fashion. So I'm, I'm thinking very hard about, you know, coding different types of assets or creating different types of legal structures that might be less prone to create private wealth, but would work for many folks and make them better off than they are currently.
0: Nice. If you were to make a book recommendation to complement reading or, or even listening in your case, uh, because you have the uh, the listening for your work, um, hey, what would you recommend?
1: You know, I think there are lots of great um books out there so I've it's a really hard choice to make mm, um, sure. um uh but you know I, I think one one book that um uh that helped me a lot also think about the last crisis the 2008 crisis was um Adam II's Crashed. Um, you know, of course, I I read it differently than many others because I come to it with my legal structures. And so I would love for people to read my book maybe first, although it came out later, and then go back to Adam's book and take another look and see how how these two things would work together. Um, Another book that I'm actually going to discuss with my students in a reading group on Law and Capitalism on um, Wednesday evening is um, Ghost Work um, by Mary Gray and a co-author. And... They're basically looking at um, the many, many, many people who are participating in creating wealth for the big tech companies or for smaller tech companies. But in our digital economy, there's so many humans that work basically on um, uh, from home um, uh, that can choose for the most part. When and um, they work, where they're not being paid well. They don't get any social security, no overheads. And we're increasingly moving into an economy like that. And um, you know, I'm, I'm I, this is, law is not directly in there. Certainly, the digital stuff is in there, but law is indirectly in that story too, because you can see how companies are trying to circumvent obligations to pay their employees by not, no longer mm-hmm. having employees, but freelancers. So the entire freelance economy is basically throwing us back into a time where everything you do is just a contract. And yet some, again, legal persons and using all the devices to create capital and protect their wealth. And and, and I think ever greater part of um, people is being uh, pushed out. So again, I think if you combine their work with my book, you get a sense again, how sort of the differentiation through different types of legal Rights is, is is happening in real time right now,
0: and and that's the throwback. I mean, that that almost puts you back to 1980, right, with uh, Reagan and uh, Thatcher,
1: or right? 19th century uh, was Man- Manchester capitalism of the 19th century, perhaps in a you know in the gig, gig form, but still the same thing.
0: Same as it ever was. And um, well, Katharina, thank you very much for your time, and and I look forward to following your research. Listeners, uh, available in hardcover, Kindle, and as an audio book, check it out. The Code of Capital, How the Law Creates Wealth and Inequality, 2019.